This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today, and we're going to be reading verses 57 through 80, and that means we finish chapter 1 today. We finish Luke chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles out, if you don't have them out, it'll be right here. I'm going to read these, uh, this large section of Scripture that we're going to be focusing our attention on this morning. And then we're going to pray and we'll get to work on it. All right? This is the birth of John the Baptist, or I like to call him John the Baptizer. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, Well, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, because remember, he couldn't talk, so they were doing sign language with him, inquiring what he wanted them to, what he wanted the son to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his, Zechariah's, mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing of God. And, he, and fear came on all of their neighbors. And all of these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So if you remember, I mean, think through how Luke is doing this, okay? He's, he's investigating this man who is God, this man Jesus, who is God. And in his investigation, he would have gone all over the Judean hillside and he most likely would have talked with people who were around at this time, maybe neighbors of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so Luke writes, everyone would have remembered this. This is something that they fear. A great fear came among all the people when they saw that Zechariah, who couldn't talk for nine months, all of a sudden opened his mouth and spoke because, just, just because of saying his name is John. That's what his name is going to be. And so they wonder, well, what kind of man is this going to be? Well, they're about to find out here in just a little bit. But Zechariah is going to tell us in a song or a prophecy. So you'll see Zechariah's words here in the, in the remaining verses of this chapter are written in stanza form as well. Much like what you see when you open the book of Isaiah or the book of uh, Ezekiel. You see a lot of this. Any of the, the Old Testament prophet books, you see them sort of writing or speaking in stanza form, much like a song. Well, a lot of this, the reason why this is set out this way in our scriptures is because what Zechariah is doing is he's prophesying over his son. He is speaking what his, you know, what his son, he's telling the people basically what his son was to be as, as he grows older. And so that's verse 67. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, he's speaking directly to John, his child, his baby, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, 
to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we begin to examine the life of this man named John, we pray that you would do the same thing with us here that you did right there in this time that we're reading about, and that is you would send the Holy Spirit to empower us, that we would be spirit-filled, filled with the Spirit, just as Zechariah was. Fill us as he was filled and empower us as you empowered John. And as we open these scriptures, God, we recognize and confess that they were written by the power of the same Holy Spirit. And so again, we ask for the Holy Spirit to teach us. We ask for the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. If there's sin in our life, we invite the Holy Spirit to show us that sin and to reveal to us Jesus, our Savior, the one who died for that sin. And God, I pray that our time here would be spirit-filled this morning, that it would be pleasing to you, that it would be rewarding to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as we get into the story of John the Baptizer and his birth, he's someone that we've been anticipating now for some weeks, right? In the Gospel of Luke, as we've studied the Gospel of Luke, we have been anticipating this birth just as these people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were anticipating his birth. And that's the very way the Bible is put together. If you look throughout the entire scripture, what you see is promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. That's what the whole Christmas story is about. It's what Easter is about. It's what everything in our calendar year is about as we celebrate Jesus Promise and fulfillment. God promised this would happen and then it will be fulfilled. So there was a promise that this, this couple who was not able to have any children at all, his wife was barren, Elizabeth was not able to have children, would, would be able to receive a son. They would have a son. And the promise is that the birth of this man, John the baptizer, would, would be the one that would lead the way for the Messiah. This promise goes all the way back to the Old Testament. We read about it in the book of Malachi about five weeks ago, four or five weeks ago, four weeks ago. And all of these promises that we read about are included here in these early pages in the Gospel of Luke. And in this, and in this story that we just read this morning, this portrait where we meet this elderly couple earlier on in chapter 1 and, you know, and now in, in, the late, in the late part of chapter 1, we see the birth of this son, this elderly couple who was promised this child, much like Abraham and Sarah of the Old Testament. Again, another foreshadowing of what would happen, of what was, of what was to come with Zechariah and Elizabeth. I mean, who is Zechariah? If you remember, he's a little country town priest in a rural area in the Judean wilderness, way out in, this, in, this, in, this, in the sticks. And his wife, having never been able to conceive, they've always wanted a baby. And, the, and we know that because they prayed for that. And, and the reason we know they prayed for the, a child is because Gabriel, the angel, showed up to Zechariah and said, your prayers have been heard. Your prayers have been heard. You are going to have a child. It's the biggest day in Zechariah's life. If you remember, we talked about him going into the temple. I showed you pictures of the temple up here on the screen. And Zechariah would have been chosen he would, you know, through the casting of lots to be the one to go in and perform the ministry in the Holy of Holies. And he would go in there. And as he went in there, he saw the angel Gabriel showed up and said, hey, your prayer's been answered. Your prayer's been heard. Your wife is going to give birth to a son. Go home to her when she conceives and, and she delivers that son. You are to name him John. You are to name him John, which means God is gracious. And so Zechariah, much like a lot of us, said he spoke when he shouldn't have spoke, and then he became mute. God rendered him mute for the next nine months of the entire course of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Well, around that same time, the angel Gabriel also made a stop in another town to a young woman that we talked about the last couple of weeks named Mary. He stopped over in, in uh, Nazareth, and, and Mary is a relative of Elizabeth. Mary was betrothed to be married to Joseph. We talked about betrothal and how it's similar but not the same as engagement. It was almost, it was, it was, it was a covenant promise. A betrothal was, 
And they were most likely very young teenagers, very young in a simple, small rural town in Nazareth. And last week we read about the interaction of these two women, Mary and Elizabeth, at the very beginning of the section of scripture we studied last week, where Mary goes down to visit Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth sees Mary, when they greet one another, the child in Elizabeth's belly kind of leaps. And she told her about that, how, how, how you know, it, she's like, John must have recognized my Savior, his Savior in your womb, the, the, the son of God, Jesus there, and they recognized, they knew who he was, they knew what was going on here. Incredibly blessed people. Incredible, incredible scene here when you see this. Well, now today we get to, again, we're, we're, we're going back to John. We're back to Zechariah and Elizabeth. We spent a couple weeks looking at Mary. Well, now we go back to Zechariah and Elizabeth because Elizabeth was pregnant five months sooner than Mary, and so Elizabeth has her child before Mary. And, and that child is born today. We see him here, John, the who was going to be John the baptizer. And so as John is born, and they're all gathered around, they finally you know, get to see the baby. Elizabeth finally gets to mom. God had lifted her reproach, as she said at the end of her prayer, early in chapter 1, with the gift of the son. And everyone is kind of clamoring around, wanting to help name the child, you know. Everybody has a suggestion for what they should be named. But Elizabeth says, no, we're, not, we're supposed to name him something specific. He's going to be named John. And they're like, what, John? There's nobody in your family named John, right? And so then they go to Zechariah. Zechariah, what do you think? And he's trying to sign it to them. He's like, give me something to write on. And he writes, his name is John. And he holds it up. And when he holds that up, his voice is opened. His, his mouth is open again. He's able to use his voice again. And, and Zechariah, using his newly found vocals, begins right away with blessing and praising and worshiping God. And that's what we see. That's what the majority of our focus is going to be on today. Last week, we looked at Mary's prayer. Today, we look at Zechariah's prophecy. And this young man that they were going to raise named John the Baptizer, Zechariah is going to tell us in these verses exactly what kind of man John was going to be. Because they knew. They knew what God's call was on his life. And so Zechariah tells us while John is still lying in baby clothes, wherever they had him laying. I don't know. They probably had a bed for him. Jesus had a manger. So if I, were to, if I were to have asked you today coming in, like if I would have given you all a piece of paper as you walked in with the question at the top for you to answer, and the question being, who is the greatest man who has ever lived in the history of the world? And you just needed to write, write down the name of some, somebody that you would think that, that that answer would be, Right? Who is the greatest person who has ever lived in the history of the world other than Jesus? Okay, we got to put Jesus in a different... Jesus gets his own category, okay? You know, because divine and man, yeah, okay, of course he's the greatest person who ever lived, right? Jesus is God. But in addition to Jesus, who's the greatest person to have ever lived? Now, my assumption, unless you knew the answer I was looking for, my assumption would be that you probably wouldn't have thought of John the Baptizer. You probably wouldn't have thought of this guy unless you already know his story. But I want to show you why I can say this is the greatest man who's ever lived. Because it's true. It's actually spoken of twice in the scripture. Once by the angel, Gabriel, again, and once by Jesus himself. So in, back in chapter, we're in chapter 1 pretty much the whole time. So back in verse 14, the, the angel Gabriel said, and this was part of a, a, his prophecy. He said, many will rejoice at his birth, verses 14 and 15, for he will be, here's our word, great before the Lord. So the angel already said, this child is going to be great he must not drink strong wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Well, then Jesus says later on, and this is actually over in chapter 7 in the Gospel of Luke, verse 28. Jesus says of John the Baptist, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, that's a powerful statement. I mean, when Jesus, when Jesus says that, and Jesus actually later says the same thing. He says, the greatest man who's ever lived is John. And that means, to me, what that means is, the greatest man who's ever lived is John. <laughs> if Jesus says it, then, I, then I'll, I'll take his word for it, okay? So that's the answer to the question. There is an answer to the question. And I think it's important to say this, because I know that it's very possible that some of you uh, have, have developed at some point in your life a, a false understanding of humility, 
And I want to tell you, humility is not that you're unwilling to aspire to greatness. You should aspire to greatness. You really should. But humility is that you're willing to aspire to greatness in the way that pleases God. That's the key. That's the point. There's a story uh, elsewhere in the scripture where some people come to Jesus. I actually believe it's the other John. It's the John who wrote the Gospel of John and his brother James. They come to Jesus and they're asking, who's the greatest? How can we become the greatest? And rather than rebuking them and saying, well, you shouldn't aspire to be great. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus just answered the question. Here's how you're great. Be the humble servant of all. Be the humble servant of everyone. And so what we see in John, the the baptizer, is that John is the humble servant of all. He is the definition of greatness. And he is the greatest man who's ever lived, according to Jesus. And he's perhaps the greatest because he himself is known for saying one of the things, one of the greatest, most famous words that John the Baptist ever said is he, speaking of Jesus, he must increase I must decrease. And that's what it means to be a humble servant of all. It's not a bad thing to aspire to greatness, but providing that we define greatness biblically. We have to have a biblical view and understanding of what greatness is and then pursue it humbly. And so what I would like to do today is is focus on this issue of greatness and what it looks like to be great according to Jesus. Because if Jesus gives us John and holds John up as the greatest man who's ever lived, and I want to be great, then I, ought to, then, we, then I think we can do a character study on John to figure out what it looks like to be great in the eyes of Jesus. And that's kind of what we want to do. Just going to do a little character study of John the baptizer today. And so we're going to just examine this man today. Jesus says is the greatest man who has ever lived. If hundreds and thousands of years of prophetic exp- you know, expectation was awaiting the birth of this man, John the Baptist, and the angel Gabriel comes down to announce his birth, it's a pretty big deal. And so we're going to examine, and if Jesus then says he's the greatest that's ever lived, then I think we should look at him because he doesn't get a whole lot of time in the scripture. He doesn't get a whole lot because his ministry, very quite honestly, was very short. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But we're going to give you, I'm going to, we're going to look at six aspects of John's greatness, and we're going to look at those from Zechariah's prophecy, from what Zechariah prophesies about his son. So the very first thing that we see, there's six of them. You can make a list if you, for those of you that are, that are taking notes and making lists. I'm getting better at making lists in my sermons. I'm not, I didn't used to have you know, points that are easily defined, but I'll just tell you when we have them. So here's our points. Like last week, I had 17. You're like, well, at least it's only seven today or six today, so... The first thing that we see in Zechariah's prophecy is that is, and not just in Zechariah's prophecy, but in the prophecy of the angel Gabriel as well, is that we're told, actually, let's back up. Let's back up. I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's talk about Elizabeth and, and, and Zechariah for a second. And I think this is one of the reasons why John is great, because we're told that both his mother and Elizabeth, Elizabeth and Zechariah were spirit filled. He, he had people in his life that raised him, that raised him who were spirit filled. Luke 1, 41 says this. If you go back to what some of the verses that we were reading in the last couple of weeks, that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the remainder of that story goes on to say that she prophesied over Mary. And then in today's verses, 167, verse 67, Zechariah, his father, what's it say? Was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So ultimately, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah Speaks over his son at his birth. Now, what we, I, I, what I want us to do is, and I've, and I've mentioned this word "spirit-filled" quite a bit this morning intentionally, because I want to take a little bit of time to talk about what it means to be spirit-filled. One of the aspects of John's ministry and John's greatness is that he was a spirit-filled man. So, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Well, if any of you have ever come from charismatic or Pentecostal traditions. You know, then you, you have an, a perspective of what that means, right? Or if you maybe visited one of those churches with a friend of yours when you were growing up, or you went to one of those youth camps and it kind of spooked you out a little bit. <laughs> because because that's, that's sometimes what it looks like, right? When, I, when you say spirit-filled, you know, if, if you've ever experienced anything like that and I say spirit-filled, you might be like, uh-oh, I, I think I know what that means. Or I remember what it means and it's weird, right? 
Because usually those who talk like that, who say the word spirit-filled a lot, are those who have sort of, um, I, I, would, I would almost say they've, 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 uh, they, they've kidnapped this word, uh, this, this conjunction of a word, and, and they've, they've grabbed a hold of it. And usually those who talk about being spirit-filled sometimes really are kind of weird. <laughs> and it's not, it's not always bad to be weird. I mean, John the Baptist was weird for crying out loud. I mean, he wore camel's hair for clothing and ate bugs and lived out in the woods and, and honey and things like that. So sometimes it's good to be weird. Sometimes it's good to stand out. But, but then there's another weird that's just, uh, you know, hey, I'm on TV with a white suit and evangelist hair and I'm asking you to buy this prayer cloth that kind of weird right and that's not the kind of weird that we're talking about that you know that's a whole different kind and so what happens is when you hear the word spirit filled people who who have that perspective immediately go to the book of acts and they'll say okay well so and so was spirit filled and they spoke in tongues and so that means that's what it means to be spirit filled so if you don't immediately speak in tongues you know, then you're not, the only way to show that you're spirit-filled is to do that. So come forward and the guy in the white suit with the televangelist hair will touch you on the head. And if you speak in tongues, that means you're spirit-filled too. And that's what we've sort of learned about being spirit-filled. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. If you want to understand what being spirit-filled means, don't start with the book of Acts. That's Luke's second book. Start with the book of Luke. Because Luke in his gospel speaks about the Holy Spirit and being spirit-filled more than any other gospel. Luke wrote both of these books. So Luke is the prequel and Acts is the sequel. And Luke, we have to realize, speaks about the Holy Spirit in his gospel beginning with Zechariah at the very beginning with this, this, this prophet, this Old Testament prophecy that Zechariah gives. It's, it's in the New Testament, but it's still Old Covenant that we're living under here. In this time, at the beginning of, of, of the Gospel of Luke, this is still Old Covenant. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, the Old Covenant prophets. What is John doing? The same thing that all the other prophets are doing in the Old Testament. They're preparing the way of Jesus. John is this guy. Zechariah speaks about his son. Zechariah, when he begins to speak, it says he was filled with the Spirit. And so what it means, I think, to be filled with the Spirit is to do ministry like Zechariah. It means to be spirit-filled like Elizabeth, because Elizabeth, it says, is spirit-filled. So the first spirit-filled people that we meet in the Gospels are Elizabeth and Zechariah and John. Those are the first spirit-filled people. Well, later, what you'll see as Jesus grows is you'll see the, the scriptures describing Jesus as being filled with the Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is also filled with the Spirit. And so what we can deduce from this is this, what it ultimately means to be spirit-filled is to be like Jesus. So that shouldn't freak us out at all, should it? No. That's what it, so when we talk about being spirit-filled, being filled with the Spirit, we're just talking about that's what we should aspire to. John is simply aspiring to be like Jesus. Elizabeth and Zechariah are spirit-filled. They're aspiring to be like their Savior, Jesus, because he is their God and he is our God. And so understand that when we talk about the Spirit, we're talking about God. That's who the Spirit is. It's not, we're not just talking about, he, he is a he, a person, not an it. So we can't speak of the Holy Spirit as an it, as some kind of, some kind of impersonal force. He can, be, he's, he can be grieved. He can be resisted, the Bible says. He, you know, the Holy Spirit is God. He is the third member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit loves, he glorifies, he honors Jesus in the same way that God honors himself in all of those forms. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so we know the Spirit is at work in the world and in someone's life when people love Jesus. When people behave like Jesus, we know oh, that's a Spirit-filled person. When they actually worship and enjoy Jesus. When they confess their sin, that's, a, that's, that's, that's evidence that you're spirit-filled because the Holy Spirit loves to, to convict of sin. He loves to point out to you, what, you know, the direction that you should go. He loves to instruct you. He loves to teach you about Jesus. In fact, the Holy Spirit is who inspired the writing of the entire Bible. And so when you read this, it's not just, it's not just like any other book. This is a Holy Spirit-inspired book. He will help you make these words come to life in your heart and in your life. And that is who he is. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, the scripture says, enters your heart. He regenerates you. He 
gives you this experience of being born again. It's like you begin a new life. He takes up residence in you. You now have a new heart. You have a new mind. You have a new nature. You have a new life. And that's what the scripture means when it says that you have been baptized or sealed in the spirit. That's what baptism means. So of the seven, or the, excuse me, the six aspects of John's greatness that we're looking at, the first one is that he comes from spirit-filled parents. He has spirit-filled mentors who have raised him. He's, he, and that's a beautiful thing. And we pray that. We want to pray that for everyone who's a parent today, that you would be spirit-filled parents. So then the second thing is this, is that John himself was filled with the Spirit. So chapter 1, back in verse 15, the prophecy that was given before his birth by the angel Gabriel says, he will be filled, this is John, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And then, and then later in, in verse 66, the verse that we read today says this, the hand of the Lord was with him. And that's, another, that's another way of saying that the Holy Spirit was present with John through, through him, working through him. The hand of the Lord was, was, was working with him throughout the course of his life. This is really important. And the reason why this is important is, is, is for this. is because when we tend to do character studies in the Bible, or when you hear lessons, like if you have devotionals and things like that, and you focus on a person in the Bible, like a character in the Bible, one of the easy things that, that, that tends to happen is this. We pick someone in the Bible, we look at their life, and we say, okay, what are the good things they did, and what are the bad things they did? And then we, we say, okay, I, I don't want to do the bad things, I want to do the good things. And the result of that is something called moralizing. And moralizing actually destroys the intent of Scripture. You don't even need to be a Christian to moralize. You could read the Bible, and many people do, and they see, well, these are good people in the Bible. These are good things, and these are bad things. And as long as I do the good things and don't do the bad things, then that means I'm saved. And that is not true. This is why it's important for us to recognize that one of the things that makes John great is not that he was a moralizer, but that he was filled with the Spirit. That's, that's where Luke begins with John and his greatness. Is that, and that's because the angel says that about John, is that he was filled with the Spirit. You see, you can have any religion, you can have any ideology or philosophy or theology and moralize Scripture it's one of the great errors, I think, of Bible teachers is that, is, is that we tend to end up with in our application of the scripture is don't do the bad things, do the good things. Okay, now everybody go. And, and that is not the way John was able to be the greatest man who ever lived. The way John was able to be the greatest man who ever lived was by the Holy Spirit, is that he was spirit-filled. And we need to see that. And as we study John from here and you look at his amazing life and the legacy that he has and the fruit of his ministry, it's not that you look at John, you go, well, I just need to do what John did. No, I think the example that we have here is that we need to be filled by the Holy Spirit like John was. We need to be empowered and transformed by the Holy Spirit like John was because maybe your calling and your ministry is different and you'll never know that unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit because he is the one who speaks to you. He's the one who sends you. He's the one who calls you and puts you feet, your feet in the path that he wants you to go on. And it may not look exactly like John, but if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can say the same thing of you and that is you are great. We can say that. And that's what it means. To be is, is that John goes out in the power of God. That's what it means to, to live in the power of God, as Paul talks about, and to speak in the power of God. So number three, the third way, the third aspect of John's greatness. We're going to read it in verse 76 here in a minute, but I'll call it this. He humbly prepared the way for Jesus. This is something that, we, that is most well known about what John's purpose was in coming and in ministry. Zechariah prayed this. He prophesied over his son. I mean, imagine that, right? Imagine that you're a dad who loves God. You've been waiting. I mean, you guys are old now. Your wife finally is able to have a child. You, you had given up hope, but now it, it, the day is there. Your son is born. The Holy Spirit fills you. You've not been able to speak anything for nine months. Finally, your mouth is opened, and you start to prophesy about your son. And you say this, you, you, know, you child, 
You're speaking directly to that son. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. John's role, his primary role, is to get people ready for Jesus. It's not about John, it's about Jesus. I mean, if this was a company that John was working in, he would not be the CEO, he would, not, he would, he would be the assistant. He wouldn't be the president. If it was a football team, he wouldn't be a running back, he'd be an offensive lineman. <laughs> right? Why? Because he's clearing the path. He's getting people ready to meet Jesus. And we're not saying you running backs are Jesus. That's not what we're saying. <laughs> but he humbly prepared the way. The Old Testament prophesied that this is who he would be. This is what he would do. The Old Testament says one is coming to prepare the way of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John was that man. He humbly prepared the way. So that's one of the things that makes somebody great is they get people ready to meet Jesus. Number four, he was an evangelist. So I've talked a little bit about evangelists, so I need to clean up this word too, right? What does it mean to be an evangelist? Verses 77 and 78 says this, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And then I'll, I'll read that, that last part here in just a little bit. I want to focus on that just for a second. To give knowledge of salvation to, our, to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. That's what salvation, so salvation is the key. Here's the bottom line, all right? This is, this is the absolute bottom line of everything. People belong to Satan or God. People are going to heaven or hell. That's it. There is, I mean, everyone who has ever lived fits those two categories. That's as simple as it gets. And, the, and no one is exempt. Every race, gender, nationality, ethnicity, language, socioeconomic background, sexual preference, all secondary. The big issue is two teams, Satan, hell, Jesus, heaven. That's it. And salvation is quite simply being saved from hell to heaven, from Satan to Jesus, from death to life. That's it. That's, what it, that's all it means to be an evangelist is you, you help people to see that. You help bring people from there to there. And John knows, this is John, it says John's ministry is, is one who knows that this is true. People are going to hell. He wants them to go to heaven. People belong to Satan. He wants them to belong to God. He wants them to be liberated from their sin, free from their sin, to live in the freedom and the love and the grace and the mercy of God as children of God. And that's evangelism. He just simply tells them about salvation. That's what it is. That's all it means to be an evangelist. So salvation then is this, very simply, you and I have sinned against a holy and righteous God, every single person, and he, God, has come into human history as, as the man, Jesus Christ, the one that John is preparing the way for, the Messiah, the one that was promised all throughout the beginning of time. Jesus Christ has come into this world, the people that he created, to reconcile us, men and women, back to God. And in doing so, Jesus lived the life that we were unable to live, the life basically that is lived without sin. So we couldn't do it. It requires perfection. Jesus was able to do it. And then he was put to death, and in dying a death that we should have died, the death for sin, because the wages of sin is death, the scripture tells us, Jesus died that death for us so that we wouldn't have to. And then he, he, he has risen from death to give the gift that we couldn't earn, which is the gift of forgiveness of sin and life. That's all salvation is. That's really simply what it is. And John, his whole purpose is to say that. It, and he never gets tired of saying it. And the prophecy that's on John's life is that he will be an evangelist. He will be one that would spend his whole life telling people about salvation. And he loved seeing people come and get ready for Jesus. 
He just loved it. That's why you see this guy who just looks like a, he, I, he looks like a werewolf out there in the middle of this river, just shouting, repent of your sins, come out of here, behold, there's one coming after me. And, and people would come out and he's like, you know, get ready, he'd baptize them. And, he's like, and they don't even fully understand what's going on, but they know they trust him and they believe and they know that, that, that they can sense that God is coming to us. So he's telling them this baptism is going to be symbolic of how he's going to wash away your sins. And so we need to cleanse ourselves and get ready, just like one by one, dunking people under the water and showing in a physical form the spiritual act that Christ is going to do with them. And that's what, that's what baptism is when you dunk someone underwater. It shows you in a physical form form what Christ has done in a spiritual way and John's preparing people for that and that's why he gets the name John the Baptist because he's, the, he's out there just dunking people under the water that was his purpose to be an evangelist number five an aspect of John's greatness is that he made the invisible kingdom visible this is that this is where I want to read that last section, the last part of that verse. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those in sin. I want to read that verse, but before I do that, I want to go back and read the section verses 68 to 75 again in its entirety so that we can see this. This is where this is summarized in saying, making the invisible kingdom visible. Because there are there are two kingdoms. And, and there's one that we can't see, but we, but we get glimpses of now and then. And I think we get glimpses of in times and moments of worship. I really do. I think that we get glimpses of that. We get glimpses of that when, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you do something that you know you're called to do. You speak to someone being filled <clears throat> excuse me, with the Holy Spirit and, and you are, you, you, we get glimpses of it. So here's, here's what it is. And, I, and Zechariah prophesies about it. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now skip over to verses 78 and 79. And here, let's read this. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so I feel like these words probably should be explained a little bit. And so that, this is how we'll explain that. And, you know, it's talking about him coming down and, and shining light in darkness. The best way to explain and think about the kingdom is this. God is a king. Jesus is a king. Revelation says that right now he is seated on a throne. After his resurrection and before his ascension, in that, in that window of time when Jesus was speaking and preaching to people and he was revealing himself as, as risen from death, before he ascended back to heaven to sit on the throne where he is now, Jesus said these words, all authority is given unto me. He's a king over everything. He's a king and he rules the kingdom of heaven. It is the invisible kingdom that right now we just don't see. But Jesus is ruling over it at all times. That's who he is. That's why we sing of Jesus as being a king. He rules over all times, all nations, all places, all cultures, all languages, all tribes, all lifestyles of all people. He rules over the angels and the demons. He rules over the rich and the poor and the living and the dead. He's a king and his invisible kingdom will one day be established on the earth with his second coming. That's what the scripture teaches us to look for now. So now we're no longer looking for a Messiah. We're looking for that day when we will fully see the kingdom of God that we only get glimpses of now. The invisible kingdom will be made fully visible. All we see now on this earth are, are visible kingdoms. But Zechariah in his prophecy gives us a glimpse. He refers to God's kingdom as light where there is love and life and truth and justice and joy 
evermore. And it refers to the kingdoms of earth where we live now as darkness and sin and death and depravity and folly and disobedience and death. And there's just, that's, that's where we are every day. And so to invest so much in this kingdom, in these kingdoms on earth is investing in that. And John Calvin, one of the early church fathers, was, was fond of saying that one of the functions of Christians in general, and the church in particular, is to do this very thing, that what we've made this point to be, to make, the, to make visible the invisible kingdom of God. That's one of our great functions. And that's what John is doing. That's the prophecy that Zechariah has for his son, John, that he would make the invisible kingdom visible, that light would be shed in this dark world. So how's that done today? Like, how can we apply this to our lives? So here, here's how I think one of the ways that we can think about it. When Christians are generous rather than greedy, it's to show that the kingdom of God is made visible here on earth. That's one of the things that shows it. When we forgive, when everybody else points and becomes bitter, gets, gets angry or bitter, we forgive. That's a way that the kingdom of God, I think, breaks through in this world. When we love rather than hate, when we serve rather than take, when we look after those who are, who are needy or poor, marginalized and weak, when, when, when we care for, as the scripture says, care for the widow and the orphan, when we, when we extend a hand of friendship to people that would normally be considered our enemies, when we bless people who persecute us and speak badly of us, when we love the people who hate us, that's what we're doing is kingdom work. That's kingdom work. That's when the kingdom of God become, becomes visible. And it's not just doing a bunch of good works like this so that people would cheer for us and our morality. I mean, that's, you know, or so that, you know, hospitals will be named after us or so that we'll be given this plaque. That's not, that's, that's what religious people do, but rather so that they'll be able to see the glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, just glimpses of the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, something of the light of the heavenly kingdom would just begin to shine in this darkness in the culture of our world so that others would see that there is a king, there's a great king who is benevolent and loving, and he transforms everything about us. He absolutely changes us from the inside out. And this is the prophecy of the kind of man John would be, is that he would be one that would his entire life would be focused on that kingdom, showing that kingdom. And the last thing is this, number six, is very simply, John obeyed God's call on his life. He obeyed it. The angel Gabriel said in verse 17 that he would go before him. John would go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, prepared for Jesus. This is an echo of Malachi, the Old Testament prophet. So the Old Testament prophet, Malachi, roughly 400 years or so before the birth of John and Jesus, said the Lord is coming. That's the Lord Jesus he's talking about. So the Lord Jesus is coming. God is coming into history as a man. And before that, to prepare his way, there will be a prophet who comes. And John is that prophet. He's coming in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, which simply means he's empowered by the same Holy Spirit as Elijah, one of the great Old Testament prophets. And so here we learn that John is basically one of the last, is the last of the Old Covenant prophets. I mean, there, I mean after that, there is no need for an Old Testament prophet anymore because Jesus comes. And John comes preaching repentance, preparing the way of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he, he obeyed God and his call on his life. That's who John was. And if you think about this, I mean, John is a great man, but God gave him a really difficult calling, did he not? I mean, John would have been keenly familiar as a student of the scripture growing up and learning the scriptures in a Jewish household with the fact, you know, learning about all the prophets. I think John would have learned and been pretty familiar with the fact of what happens to prophets. They tend to get murdered. And before that, they tend to be exiled. I mean, when you stand up against an entire nation and tell them that they're all religious and wicked and God is displeased with them and he's going to judge them, they tend to kick you out. I mean, that's what, that's what happens. They call it exiled, just basically being booted from the, from the nation. I think maybe that's why John lives out in the woods. They can't find him. He just kind of comes out and he starts talking and he sneaks back up in the woods and he starts eating locusts and honey again, whatever he can find out there. Because, and, you know, hey, prophets are lonely guys. 
John's a man who accepted God's call on his life, and God's call was difficult. But John accepted it, and he lived it out. And as far as we know, John never got married, didn't have children, probably because, just you know, like Jesus, he knew he would die young. But unlike Jesus, John's resurrection is still forthcoming. He preached, John preached what we know as the message of repentance, which is basically, you're a sinner, you need God, turn to him in faith. He preached to thousands of people. And as far as we can guess, he probably baptized thousands of people. I mean, he fought against the religious people. And once Jesus began his ministry, so Jesus comes along, because Jesus is just a little younger than him, so Jesus becomes along and begins his ministry at around the age of 30 or so. John then stepped back and handed over all of his followers to Jesus. You don't really hear much from John after that. I mean, he preached against Herod. He kept preaching against Herod. This was Herod, Herod the Great, right? Herod the ruler, Herod the powerful, Herod who slept, you know, married his brother's wife. That's, that's the Herod we're talking about. So John hears about that and he says, hey, Herod needs to repent too. Herod shouldn't just build a big, nice temple. He should go there and apologize for all of his wrongdoing and repent of his sins as well. Well, this kind of made John pretty unpopular with Herod. And so the decision was made to go out and arrest John to try to silence him. And the way they tried to silence him was by putting him into prison. But not even that worked. And so, chopped off his head. That's how John's life came to an end. The only way to silence that man. That's a man who humbly accepted his call. He went from having a large following, giving up his followers, being imprisoned, and then beheaded. How long do you think his ministry lasted? Have you ever looked this up? You ever considered this? The best we can tell, the best guess we have, his preaching, baptizing, all of that, maybe six months. Six months. He went off like a bomb, didn't he? I mean, the greatest man in the history of the world. He knocked out that to-do list pretty quick. Six months. Six months. How? How did he do that? The only way possible is by the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't knock out that list of goals without the Holy Spirit. That's the power. That's the only power. And so I, I just want to, look, let's, let's isolate it to, to men, women, and children here, all right? And so if I were to just speak to the men in here for a second. I think John is the greatest example for us about what a real man is. We're told by a lot of people today about what real men look like, what real men do, what real men say, don't say, what, what not. But if you want to know what a real man is, look at, guy, look, at, look, at, look at characters like John. What do I mean by that? Filled with the Spirit. Humbly prepares the way for Jesus. He's an evangelist who made it his life's work to introduce others to Jesus. He's a man who ultimately is a giver and not a taker. I mean, that's John. He's a producer, right? He's not a consumer. He's not trying to get, gain as much as he can. He produces. He creates. That's John. I think that is the most manly person in the world. And I would just pray for all the men in here to be spirit-filled, filled with the Holy Spirit like John, and that you would be fathers like Zechariah, another spirit-filled man. And I would pray for all the women here to be like Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit. I pray that you would love and serve one another and serve them in your God and know him and be filled with the Spirit and know that when, when, you, when you meet Jesus, you desire is wholeheartedly to share him with others, just like Elizabeth and Zechariah did and then John as well. And so I could pray the same thing for children, that children would be filled with the Spirit and serve Jesus just like John did. Because that's who John was in the story as he was a, as a young child who grew to fulfill his calling. And so the, the last thing I'll say is this. How does this happen? Where does it all begin? Well, John will tell us later in his message, which is very simple, repent and be baptized. I mean, that was, and there was an urgency to that message. There was a sense of urgency to John and his message and what he came to do. And he basically would look at people and he would tell them, look, you got to put your sin to death. you got to start showing your faith in Jesus. He's coming. Jesus is coming. His death, his burial, his resurrection is going to happen. It takes away our sin. So live a new life by the power of the Spirit. That was John's whole message. And there was an urgency about John the Baptist as he preached these things. He urged people, prepare for Jesus. Repent now. Be baptized. Behold, the Lamb of God is coming who takes away the sins of the world. Listen, if you've never had a sense of urgency for anything in your life, get a sense of urgency for this. 
I think if John were here today, he would tell us all without any hesitation, without any timidity whatsoever, he'd say, he'd just look at us and say, are you ready to give your life to Christ? Are you ready for Christ? Are you ready? Are you ready? He's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready to yield right now to the power of the Holy Spirit? Do that right now. So, I'll just say this. If you've never given your life to Jesus, do it. I'll just speak like John. Do it today. Don't wait. Do it right now. If you've never proclaimed your faith in Jesus and you want to do that, you can do it right here, right now. As we sing, as you have a moment with Christ in your living room, as you're driving, wherever it is that you're participating here today, whether you're in this room or somewhere else online, you can do it right now. If you've never been baptized and you want to do that, we can set that up for you today. We may not have a place to do it today, but we can certainly schedule it for you today. So let's pray, and then we're going to respond in worship and just give you the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to just speak to you directly as we take communion together. That's, that's sort of the culmination of our time together, is where you personally get a chance to get up and go grab communion, which, by the way, is sealed, and we got, we got a new shipment in, so all the communion is sealed with the wafer and the juice together, and you can just take it um, whenever you're prepared in your heart, as Paul says, and ready. Um, and, uh, and then just respond. Respond to God's calling on your own life as we worship. Well, Lord God, I pray that these words today would, would be um, accompanied by the Spirit's power and that ultimately, Holy Spirit, you would convict of sin, that you would reveal to us Jesus, that you would regenerate new life today. God, I pray for the men and women who call this church their home and also the men and women who just maybe listen in online. Maybe they call it their home online. <laughs> and, I, and I pray, God, that for all the children who are participating as well, I pray that mothers would, would be like Elizabeth. I pray that fathers would be like Zechariah. I pray that children would be like John, all filled with the Spirit, preparing the way for Jesus to be very real and very involved in their lives, that they would prepare their hearts right now as we continue to sing, as we worship, as we respond to your word, that, that the invisible kingdom would, be, would become visible, just a glimpse, and that we would be able to go out and find ways to do that in our own lives. And we would do it to the glory of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, and we ask all of this for your glory. In Jesus' name.